0: Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Well, here we go, stage number two of Open Trailer Podcast with Goodwin Hannaford. My name's Andy Austin, and over the next half an hour or so, Goodwin comes out swinging and just does not let up. The man has certainly never shied away from an opinion, and we start with the big one. For modified fans, and especially race fans in Southern Maine, the controversial ending to Beach Ridge's modified division. Like many race teams of that time, Goodwin's team makes its way to Claremont, but... You may have forgotten there was a short detour before all the teams went west. And we get personal. I love it when we go here. Uh, Goodwin talks about how his wife has really been his rock throughout his entire health ordeal, and and just in general. The gratitude that he has for Anne is, is quite remarkable you know your support of open trailer podcast greatly benefits Maine vintage race car association thank you for taking the time to become a member for less than two dollars a month mainvintagerace.org we have family memberships we have uh, lifetime memberships and we also want you involved too if you've enjoyed this podcast some of the people that we've had how about spending some time with us we have some amazing events coming up for the summer of 2021 and would love for you to be a part of them. All the information can be found at mainvintagerace.org. Let's let Goodwin do the talking at stage number two on today's Open Trailer Podcast. Enjoy! Most modern day people they know you from the number 71 modified mm-hmm. and you had two I'm proud of that. yeah two distinct modifieds tell me about getting involved with racing in the
1: 80s first of all i was told that i could not and in 87 i started thinking along the lines of a divorce and it became official and Done and but before that I bought a modified. I bought uh, okay. Dennis Rowell, the insurance company, I bought his modified that he had for his son Clint. And this is when Beechridge
0: had their, their modified division and it That's was correct. the top.
1: It was a top division top around division anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. Ralph Kuzak was a very close friend of mine. I thought the world of Ralph Kuzak until he became the owner of Beechridge Speedway. Unfortunately, he had Two different factions that were trying to tear at him to get him to run his track differently than it had ever been run before. Neither one of them were correct. If they had combined, they would have been enormously successful with modifieds today because everywhere you go and the modifieds are there, the track is full. The stands are full and they say it's a very expensive division Sure it is. But the fans will come and pay the bills. The
0: late 80s were a controversial time for modified racing, I think, across the nation between uh, losing some of the national stars. Truly. And uh, even locally, Beechridge had its struggles, eventually uh, eliminated the modified division after 1990. You had a team at that point. Yes, we did. From a team owner's perspective, uh, what was that? What was that like?
1: I was very angry because there was absolutely, you could not, I was on the board of directors during those turbulent times for Maine State Stock High Racing Association, at which Ralph's hand threw us out. He threw out the association that had been there since J.B. McConnell built the place in 1948 and started racing in '49. That group had been there to work with the owner, to make the whole thing work together. And it could have continued, and has continued in other places. Because you get two different perspectives, and somewhere between the two arbitrarily different perspectives will come some good, and it will be successful. You can't have racing without paying the bills. And if you do, the races are going to go bankrupt. If you if they don't go bankrupt, the owner's going to go bankrupt. You've got to work together. And for a long time, I watched that work and was a part of it. I was on the board of directors for a long time.
0: So the division uh, evaporates essentially at Beatridge after the 90 season, yep. which leaves a lot of teams with a ton of money invested in racing. Exactly. You actually had a bit of a detour. A lot of them went to Claremont, but beforehand... You went to Oxford.
1: We went to Oxford and tried to develop a program under the biggest liar that was ever fostered in the state of Maine. And that would be Michael Liberty. And I met in his, what the hell ever you want to call it, show place up there. And we didn't win. Is this in gray? Yeah. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. And we relied to. He's been
2: pardoned. Pardon me? Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. (laughs) He's been pardoned. He's been
0: pardoned. Not by me. No. They were trying to make the division work, but they just
1: couldn't make it work. Why do you think that that happened? Because they tried to change the rules to make Mike Liberty happy. If they had left the rules exactly as they were at Beatridge and just moved the whole program to Oxford, it would have been enormously successful. There are people up in Oxford that like fat tires and a lot of horsepower. Believe me, why were the Getty Opens so successful? Noise
0: and speed, horsepower? That was some of the first races that I remember attending, uh, those twin 100s up at Oxford. Um, some of the drivers you have in, in this time, uh, Willie Elliott picked yep. up a win with you. Yep. Uh, what kind of guy was uh, is Willie Elliott? Well, he was one of my
1: favorite students at Scarborough High School, and he was impossible to deal with as a student, and I loved him because he reminded me so much of me. Right. He is outspoken; and he'll tell you what he thinks, no matter what. That's all I ask of anybody.
0: So when how how do you end up working together as a, as a car owner and a and a driver?
1: He decided that he wanted to go to uh, White, Mountain? Mountain oh, White Mountain Motorsport Park, and that's where he wound up, with, Wound up, and that's where he finished up his modified career. Hmm. And I didn't want to go to White Mountain Motorsport Park because they had very, very restrictive rules. And they did not have restrictive rules at Beech Ridge, anywhere near as restrictive as what they did at White Mountain, and the racing was better and it was more competitive. You eventually settle into
0: uh, Claremont Speedway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it like to go from a racetrack that's 20 minutes down the road to a th- six-hour haul both ways every yeah. single week yeah. to
1: Claremont? It was a strain, mm-hmm. and we loved it. But we were young. Yeah, we, yeah, we were in our mid-40s. <laughs> that's right. But anyway, no, we, we really enjoyed it over there, and the people, uh, by and large, most of the people made it such that we could deal with it over there. there were the, 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 every racetrack has got a problem or more.
0: When you went there, it's not like you ran into 10 other drivers. There were full fields every single week. Many
1: weeks, they sent people home without qualifying.
0: After um, being so su- successful at Beechridge, um, how was Claremont
1: to adapt well, to? We were just as successful. Yeah. I'm sorry. And that's tooting my own horn, and I don't normally do that. Right. But we were successful.
0: And Claremont is a very difficult track. That's what I was going to get to. More, more the, the, the shape of it is. it's just a weird yeah,
2: track. Very, very unique layout. Uniques, unique. Unique layout,
1: yeah, yep. but it's fast. Yeah. And if you've got a ton of horsepower, you can use all of it. You so, know, yeah, so
0: you're the main people coming into this New Hampshire slash Vermont racetrack. And who'd
1: you park next to? First day, we were right beside uh, Peter Daniels. Mm. That was the first time we ever went over. And the guy that we had chosen to drive our car couldn't get in it. Who was that? He had a few, yeah. uh, Karen, Punky Karen's brother. He used to be a really Remember driver. Punky? I do. Yes. Um, and, His brother. And, and, and he was a
0: hell of a nice guy. So who do you go over to Claremont with as a driver? Nobody.
1: Regularly. Our regular driver over there at that point was um, Pete Rondo. Yeah.
0: It was Pete Rondo. mm mm-hmm. yeah. What was it like working with Pete Rondo?
1: Pete is a good friend. And he is the biggest pain in the ass I ever had <laughs> as a driver in my life. Because what you gave him today, next week was no good. What you gave him for during that week when you're trying to set up for, when he said the car was no good, was right back to where it was in the first place and then it was fine. You never could forecast what he wanted for the car. And this is before he
0: went on to great success with Furniture Row and Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Uh, He was also involved in your last interaction with NASCAR at Thompson Speedway.
1: Uh, Pete drove that car that day. Can you tell me about that day? Uh, Bill Bryce. He was a NASCAR tech director for the modified division. This is a tour race. Huh? This is a tour race. I'm trying to pay. It's it. a tour race at, okay. at Thompson, and I never have been lied to by so many different people in my life as I was that day. And they, what they would tell you for practice, they change it because we were going so damn good in practice. They change it, and no, you can't do that. You got to do this. So we did it. Then no, you got to take you got to take an eighth of an inch off your spoiler. I said, what? It Uh, was a disaster.
0: What was the turnaround time on that? When did they want it done?
1: Before the uh, next heat. So 45 minutes? Uh, No, they didn't give us that long. We had 28 or 29 minutes to take that all apart and get it back together and get it ready through inspection. Again, after we'd already been through inspection, I said, you just put it through inspection. You hadn't changed that panel. What do we know? that You left something out. Yeah and you and you consistently
0: were fast even with those
1: faster setbacks. than most yes fact, you remember the R- Ricky Fallon his brother i do we were faster than both of them because we were pitted right beside Bobby. Yeah. We were pitted. He was at, uh, and he just stood there and shook his head. I said, he said, I cannot believe this. And
0: Jeff was, I believe, the modified champion That's that correct. year. That is correct. No, champion in 92. Jamie Tomano was the champion in 90, I think. So you're, you know, you're racing the big dogs down there, and they're not letting you qualify where you finish.
1: No. Not once. Yeah. We finished practice top of the hill you know I think there were maybe four or five cars faster than we were and there were probably 40 cars there that day easily and all top shelf tour modifieds. yeah and here was a farmer from Maine with his damned old cast iron-headed motor against aluminum head motors, and on and on and on. And we had more power than any of them. Yeah, and you need that at Thompson. Yeah, you do. Yeah. That was the yard sale motor that we still got. Can still you still ex- winning races. Can you explain what a yard sale motor is? Yep. She and I got it in our heads that we were going to try this. And we went and bought this modified. And I wanted a good motor. But I knew I couldn't afford one, because back then, good motors, aluminum head motors and everything were, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 grand for a good used one. Well, I had a block, and I had a crankshaft, and I had some rods, and I needed a set of pistons anyway, so I bought a brand new set of pistons, 30 over, but they think those are the only new pieces, those in the rings, and maybe some bearings that I put in that motor. Everything else was used. We went down to Ken Matthews Yard Sale that owned Pete Rondo's car when he was running modifiers at Beech Ridge. It was, it's a roller cam, it was a roller cam, mm-hmm. with all the valve train, everything. Valve springs, valve retainers, everything. Mm-hmm. The valve train, I bought it for 75 bucks. They had a, they had a 750 Holly and uh, of course you couldn't run them at Beechridge, Ridge, so they made them, take about, made, take, made them take it off, and I bought it at the Yard Sale for 50 bucks. The it Myettas. Was, yeah. yeah. No. And it was a $600 carburetor when they bought it. And it wasn't two weeks old. I brought that home, tore that all apart, and made it my way, and which you did, I've always done. for All of my customers have always done their carburetors. So you're whipping everyone down, at tour Modifieds in Connecticut. and Everybody. And it keep, was legal. Yeah. And the worst part of it was, Bill Bryce was a fair and honest man, and he was was the man that NASCAR had chosen to inspect the modifieds down there at this Thompson deal when they disqualified everything on the car, including the rear spoiler. Hmm. And if they had looked, if they'd taken the carburetor apart and looked at it, they would have thrown that out, and I knew that was coming. I had another carburetor with me that was legal. So what happens? They, uh, they That is,
0: or uh, was your last association with NASCAR for a long time. What happened at the end of that day? At the
1: end of that day, we left. We, you- we qualified, and they threw us out in favor of putting the crowd favorite in eddie DeHaan. jeez i'm telling you
0: fast forward uh you know another 10 15 years or so and you didn't have obviously the greatest experience with touring as a result of that last story uh but another tour starts to come into focus um, what is known as the
1: modified racing series which she and I and Jack Bateman and Dwight Javis and Bruce Bachelor. Why is this tour necessary? Because there was nobody that would grab the reins and take hold of a bunch of energy and, a, and interest and channel it. Mm-hmm. And we still didn't have anybody to channel it. And these We had all these people and every one of them were good people. But nobody would take the helm and do it.
0: So Friday night, they were running at Monadnock and Saturday at Claremont, and yeah. you wanted to go different places. How, what is that first modified? No, no, no. and the little
1: promoters at Monadnock and, and, and uh, Claremont. Claremont and nice. uh, Riverside, Riverside Park over in Agawam. Uh, you know, there were a lot of small NASCAR tracks that couldn't come up with a weekly program, so they decided to combine them and tour which was a good idea, and I, I was Ann and I were both a hundred percent for it. I, I think part
2: of it too, though. Goodwin wasn't early '90s that, as a weekly series, the open wheel modifieds were, get, were getting tough sledding, hmm. and it was much easier to go onto a tour, uh, either the modified racing series or NASCAR, because. Yeah, uh, a lot of the weekly tracks that were hosting Modifieds the, were going away, weren't they?
1: Why? It wasn't that early. It, exactly. The problem, Steve, was it was not what you say. It's not because of the lack of interest in the Modifieds. It was because of the lack of promoters to be able to control the Modified owners. The Modified owners were a tough bunch to deal e- with. Exactly right, Awful. but
2: the outcome was the same. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, that's, what was right. the
0: first meeting of the the MRS like? Who was there, and
1: what were your just what we have told you? We had one meeting at the Alks Hall in Claremont, right. and it was probably well attended, probably by maybe twenty five or thirty people, owners, hmm. and that would have been good if you could made, maintain that. It would have been wonderful. There was not the interest there to do it. Hmm. Was there?
0: It eventually becomes a tour do you be are you a part of that tour at all?
1: Yeah we were and who were your drivers? The only driver we had was uh, Jim Boniface, Jim Boniface. Hmm. and Jim was good yeah. He won a lot of shows for us. Some of your greatest success is
0: fairly recent with Josh Cantara and Star Speedway. It reminds me of Tom Cruise and Harry Hogg. <laughs> You know, because here's the the grizzled old veteran, and then this kid, Josh Cantera, comes in, who nobody's ever heard of, and you start running up front with him.
1: Winning! 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 How does this pairing happen? Short story. Well, no, I'll make it a long story, because I don't know enough to shut up. you got plenty of time. Uh, He and his father were running a truck at White Mountain Motorsport Park, an S10 pickup, you know. Mm. And sitting right beside it was a pretty good pro stock. And I said, what's the matter with this guy? Well, nothing, but that's down the road a ways. I says, don't waste your money on the truck. What are you talking about? I says, put your ProStart together. We don't have an engine. And I said, well, all right, I understand. Before that day was over, they had pretty much committed in their minds, and not mine, but their minds, that they were going to have me build them a ProStart motor for that car to go to Beech Ridge. And at that time, Josh was a little young. He's 13. In a pro stock. Mm-hmm. And I got thinking about it and thinking about it, and I said, I tell you what, uh, we've got a, a week left over at Star Speedway where we can try you out in a modified. We called up Josh and Kevin and broached the idea, and, and they said, are you serious? And I said, yep. I said, I've watched him. I said, and he's got the potential to be in a pretty good shoe. And I still stand by that. I still stand by that. He is the best I have ever had.
0: So tell me about that 2006 season. Yep. Uh, You know, you're you're winning races. You're a championship contender.
1: The final weeks leading up to that championship year. I don't like to get into this, but I will because you've asked. Okay. The Webbers took three championships away from us. We had, we had done everything that you need to do. We've, we had not. We stopped short of kissing everybody's butt that you're supposed to. We wouldn't do that, and I never will to win a race. Never. However, we've done what good little races, good little doobies should, and I know all about that because I'm a former school teacher. so I understand. But it was ridiculous what we went through. All right, but you eventually do get a championship. Yeah,
0: and. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. This is your first championship. Yep. In how many years of trying?
1: Uh, 92 to 06. Right, but so, I
0: mean, you know, you were building motors for championship drivers, but as, a, as someone and, who's been invested in the sport of auto racing for, at this point, 50-plus years, to get that
1: first championship, that had to be something. But I, I had... I had I was included in so many championship banquets for motors that I had built for my customers. Mm. I cannot tell you the number of times that people invited me to their championship banquets in at the expo and so forth and so on at, over at Clamont. Was it different because it was your own team, this one? Every motor that goes out of this shop and that one up there has meant just as much to me and I don't care if it was a $450 street stock motor or a forty-five, dollars $50,000 uh, modified motor. Makes no difference.
0: All of these people um, have to fit your code, though. You know, Jeff Stevens didn't fit your code, even
1: though you you, you idolized him. And I idolized the man. I, I, if you gave me a chance today to go watch a race with Jeff Stevens versus any of the NASCAR stars, I'd go watch Jeff Stevens if he was still alive. What is your code? All right, and- first of all, I think that my code would have to be have the respect of your competitors. If you don't have your respect of your competitors, you're never going to be successful. Because they'll find a way to beat you.
0: Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame mm-hmm. 2010. You get the call. What was that like?
1: Still unbelievable. I do not know what those people were thinking of when they ever did that to me, Steve. <laughs> And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. And the older I get, the more I appreciate it, Steve. Unbelievable.
2: Yeah, it it was simply, it wasn't really anything I did. It was what you did and someone putting it in order and presenting it to the selection committee. And when the facts were laid out that day, Hmm. those achievements spoke for themselves. At the end of the day, that's what it's about, Goodman.
1: Well, I I can't thank you enough. You know, when I have comments come back to me that you had asked for on on my behalf down south from people that I had worked with down south, uh, those mean so much to me. Every once in a while, I'll dig them out and look at them. You know... Hendricks Bobby Allison and I talk at least once a year why because you made it aware to him I uh, made him aware of what I had done up north here and I worked with him a little bit one of his very first Winston Cup days in 1964 at Oxford Plain Speedway and in 65 again yeah
2: it um, you know I'm jumping around a lot here but one of my favorite stories that I got from Jerry Seavy with one of your motors and I think it may have been Thunder Road in 1974 on the early NASCAR North days and they'd gone up there with either the Camaro or the Chevelle and Homer was out there doing his thing uh, but when he pulled in he still wasn't happy with the performance to a point and the hood was open and complain about something that maybe a, a skip or or perhaps even a plug wire or something falling off and you guys were getting ready to dig into seeing what was going on and may, maybe it was just Homer being Homer on the ragged edge but the, the funny part Jerry told was all of a sudden hearing from the other side of the pit area for Christ's sakes don't fix that engine we can't catch him now and that was Tiny Lund that was Tiny, tiny That's, Lund that is a true story and and Tiny, who was there on the northern swing,
1: it the, wasn't Thunder Road. It was up in Canada.
2: Canada at. Uh, Cine-a. That's right. It Cine-a.
1: was in And Senea is a motor track of all motor tracks. Oh, track. yes, it is. And, oh. and, and in those days, in the open and that's pump, what And that's what came out of Tiny Lund's head. And Jerry Seavy called me up and told me that that yep. night. He says, you've achieved it now, mister. And the the northern guys
2: would come up here. There was a swing during the summer. Oh, jeez. Sent it around, because that time was the Oxford 200, but it would become the 250. A lot of the NASCAR guys from down south would come up here and run uh, for points and they you know they'd hit places like Sinead, Catamount, Thunder Road and stuff and uh, as a footnote Tiny ran the 200 and was killed a few weeks later at Talladega. That's correct. But Jerry always got a chuckle out of that story about Tiny Lund. you know we can't catch him now.
0: Mm. You know you mentioned Bobby Allison um, you know he was a uh, He knew about your Hall of Fame induction and said, well, yes, it's about time. When it came time for Bobby Allison to be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, uh, you gave him a call.
1: Well, he called me at quarter of seven in the morning to congratulate me going into the main Motorsports Hall of Fame. Hmm. The following year, he went into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I called him at quarter of seven in the morning, and Judy answered, and she said, Bobby, I think you'll want to take this call because he was still asleep. He got up and he took the call and I congratulated him on going into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Think of
0: everybody who was calling Bobby Allison at that time and he wasn't taking calls from everybody. Nope. Nope. Goodwin hannaford calls at seven six forty five in the morning. That's
1: right. Wow. Yeah. And that and and he still remembers it because a mutual friend talks with him at least weekly. And every once in a while, he'll ask our friend down there, how's Goodwin doing? Is he still up and around doing the stuff. And, and Ray's answer is, as long as you are, he's going to be. <laughs> I got another thing to read.
0: When I was about 13 years old, my mom used to drive me to Goodwin's house early on Saturday mornings. Our shared affection for cars led me to Goodwin's doorstep. Goodwin showed the patience, yes, Goodwin was patient, in parentheses, (laughs) needed for for a young kid to help around the shop, a kid that was being raised by a single mom, a kid who desperately needed a positive mentor. I believe in genetics and the Hannaford side of our family is clearly where our independence, strong will, and mechanical aptitude came from. I can remember like it was yesterday cleaning Homer Drew's engine parts and getting them together for Goodwin to inspect. Goodwin in my eyes has always strived for perfection, sometimes a blessing, sometimes a curse. It is a lifelong attribute that when achieved gives a deep sense of pride and gratification. I didn't realize it at the time, not unlike most teenagers. What a positive impact Goodwin had on my life. I was a kid who could have gone either way. Goodwin's influence at that critical point kept me on the most important track, life's track. And I'm truly grateful. In conclusion, what is really special about this story is not the impact on one individual. What is special is that I am one of hundreds that Goodwin has influenced over his lifetime as a parent. Educator and small businessman. In my eyes, that's Goodwin Hannaford's greatest legacy, being the guiding light for young adults as they venture out into the world dreaming about their endless opportunities. Thank you, Goodwin. With respect and admiration, signed Sean H. Moody.
1: Who is your cousin? That's right. I adored him as a little kid, and a young adult. He's done all right for himself.
0: Mm.
1: It's quite some powerful words and and the influence
0: that you've had over so many lives.
1: That's the best thing that you said.
0: And at the beginning of this book, which Ann has so graciously uh, put together right around your Hall of Fame induction, there is one quote that even you spoke of yesterday while we did our pre-interview. And in the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. Abraham Lincoln,
1: what is your life like today? Today, I'm sitting here wishing. Wishing I had my health back. Because nothing has changed within this. In and fact, right? I've got ideas of things that I would love to do, and I've done a couple on these motors that's going down south this next week. Uh, But today, we're in the age of crate motors and so many confinements and so many restrictions that you can't let a guy go loose. You let a guy like me go loose, and God only knows what they can build. Hmm. I've got a 648 horsepower motor sitting on the engine stand up there wondering what the hell I'm gonna do with it. (laughs) And it's only 353 cubic inches. Hmm. That's a pretty good motor. You're able to still have this passion and and
0: these thoughts in your mind. Some of the health challenges that people don't know about, uh,
1: what are your current limitations? I'm blind. I've got cancer. My gut hurts so bad most every day in the last three, two and a half, two and a half weeks mm. that I can hardly stand it. Uh, and I don't know what the end shot is, but I suspect I do. Uh, but you know, the thing of it is, each day that I get up and do something that I can be proud of for the day, even if it's just be nice and speak a civil word to this lady I've lived with now for quite some time, that's enough.
0: You have had quite the uh, partnership, companionship, relationship with Anne Hannaford over the last
1: thirty 20, years. Thirty, 30 years. years.
0: What has she meant to you as a, as a human being and uh, as a partner?
1: I think that the minute I try to put it into words, I will trivialize it, and I don't want to do that. That woman has meant so much to me in so many respects, and she has been so supportive. And she brings me back, she, she provides my ground strap to keep me well grounded and to keep me focused. And lots of times she'll say to me, is that what you really want to do? Well, think it through. Yeah, I have. Oh my word. I
0: want to thank Goodwin and his wife, Anne, for being so hospitable during our visit. And a huge thanks. I mean, that interview would not have been nearly as good without uh, racing historian Steve Pellerin. Very thankful that he could uh, lend his talents to another edition of Open Trailer Podcast. And hopefully we'll do more. Actually, we will. Because next week, we bring back Pete Silva and we interview this guy.
1: Yes, I've never been a quiet person, so... Uh, <laughs> and... If I was unhappy with Yeah. If I was unhappy with you, you knew it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, I'm gonna go tell you. I mean, I don't have a problem telling you. What are you gonna do? Hit me? Come on. You <laughs> know, uh, as I've been hit before. Yeah. But I mean, is when I go to bed tonight, mm-hmm. boom, I go to sleep. None of that lives with me. It's all gone because I
0: got it out. Racing Ralph Nason, the first of three stages next time out on the Open Trailer Podcast. If you like us, remember to rate and review. Five stars helps a bunch. Have a good one. Bye-bye.